Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsudliff.com. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flody, and this episode is everything you need to know about female sexuality in Islam. And I am so, so happy and grateful for my guest on today, who is the acclaimed author, Mr. Habib Akande. And he is going to go over a little bit about basically Islamic history and Islamic erotology and what the Quran and uh, the Sunnah say regarding education about this uh, very sensitive topic. And so welcome to the podcast, Mr. Akande. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's lovely to speak to you again, Dr. Sadaf. I hope you're well. Yes, yes, I am doing well. And how's the weather? Oh, how is it over there with uh, the Queen? I'm sorry to hear that the Queen passed away, right? Yeah, so we're yeah, so we're currently in a period of mourning. I think for the next 11 days, it's 12 days, it's going to be mourning until her um, funeral. Um, yeah, it's been a bit somber over here in the UK. Um, sure. But yeah, but she lived a, a long and, and fruitful life, to be fair. Yeah, yes, much longer than most people do, right? So, and it's amazing what she accomplished as well. So, but uh, but on to our topic. So I am super, super excited. And for all of our listeners, I want you to know, and for anyone watching, I want to just highlight a little bit. First and foremost is Mr. Conde's book called The Women of Desire, which is honestly my go-to book. And I love this book. I reference it all the time. And um, I really encourage all the listeners and viewers to go out and buy that book because it is filled with so much knowledge and um, just so, so good. But okay, so I'm going to I'm going to let you, um, you know, (laughs) discuss the topic. So thank you, Mr. Conde. Sure. Um, Again, just a bit of a. I'll be a background for people maybe unfamiliar with who I am and the work I do. So I studied in, um, after I graduated from university in the UK, I went to Cairo, Egypt, because I wanted to learn a little bit more about um, Islam as a religion, Islamic law, and I studied Arabic. Um, I spent three and a half years there, graduated from the college and spent a year and a half in in the university. Um, And whilst I was there, I came across not only in the university itself, but some bookshops a number of books written by Muslim scholars dating back to the 9th century, scholars such as Al-Jahid and also Imam Al-Suyuti from the 15th century, who wrote a number of sex manuals about the importance of, you know, men sexually satisfying their their wives and also the the rights that women have in Islam in terms of their sexual rights and how many of the scholars dating back from the 9th century up until the 15th century wrote many, um, not only explicit, but very refreshing texts about the importance of women's sexual satisfaction for uh, for a healthy marriage and again I thought I found that quite remarkable because yes. coming from the UK I never came across many of these works in, in in English language though I did hear you know like Islam was a sex positive religion and things like that but it was really um, enlightening for me to come come across renowned and prominent scholars speaking about this subject as far back as like I said the ninth century I don't want to interrupt you but I do want to say that you're being very modest you didn't say what university you studied at in Egypt and it's oh, yeah. very now in university so i think you should let the 
you know, listeners and viewers know that where you studied. Yeah, sorry. So I studied at Al-Azhar High yeah. School and Al-Azhar University, which is one of the leading Islamic um, universities in the world. Um, bastion of knowledge, a number of like great scholars. And like I said, I mean, it was a fountain of fountain of knowledge, listening and studying from so many people. But um, just in, obviously in relation to this particular topic, um, in terms of women's sexual rights in Islam, not only in Al-Azhar, but also from like bookstores and reading like a number of like classical books, I came across, like I mentioned, a number of scholars speaking about the importance of women's sexual satisfaction. And for me, it was quite surprising, like I said, because I had not really come across some of these works, although I was aware of some of these scholars, but I wasn't aware of like how they stressed the importance of men not only understanding women's sexual rights, but also ensuring that their wives were sexually satisfied. And there were also like, there, there weren't only instructional manuals, they also wrote like you could say, non-fictional non treaties where they spoke about like erotic anecdotes and um, both for men and for women alike, uh, allowing women to not only enjoy sexual satisfaction, but also encouraging women to demand their rights from their from their husbands. And they relayed stories from the Abbasid period and the Umayyad period, the so-called golden age of Islam, where a number of women spoke about, you know, whether their husbands were in, unable to sexually satisfy them and how they went about that. So again, for me, I thought, okay, this would be quite interesting to maybe translate and maybe um, it, bring it to the English-speaking world, so to speak. And this um, this science is known as um, erotology or ulm al meaning the science of sex or the knowledge of sex or the study of sex. And it's, it's a precursor to modern-day Western sexology. So we have sexology we started in like the 19th century um, from Europe but prior to that like I mentioned you had a number of um, Arab and African scholars writing explicit and the very important manuals about sex and intimacy and they not only used their knowledge that they or the sources from the Quran and the Hadith which we'll speak a little bit about later but also from what other erotologists had written about this topic from ancient India with the Kama Sutra tradition from ancient China from the Greco-Roman tradition where different traditions, different philosophers, different physicians spoke about sex and intimacy. And also they wanted to find out what the medical doctors or what the physicians at their time, what they spoke about in terms of sexual matters. Um, so their book about sex and intimacy wasn't just about how to have sex, so to speak, but how to enjoy sex. Sure. Because for the understanding for the early Muslims is that the act of sex is not necessarily one that's about procreation, it's about pleasure, a leather. And there's a really um, a phenomenal book that was um, written in the 10th century, I believe, called um, Jawami Al-Ledha, I mean, the Encyclopedia of Pleasure. And this is a, you know, it's, it's a female positive book that speaks about the rights that women have in their bedroom and the importance of, again, like I said, men ensuring that they sexually fulfill, fulfill their female partners. And what was interesting about the erotology books, as opposed to the fiqh books, because I did study, you know, fiqh in, in Azhar, which is fiqh being an Islamic jurisprudence, is that with the fiqh books, it's more like a case of quite dry, so to speak, in the sense of this is what you can and can't do, this is halal, this is haram, and things like that, like permissible, not permissible. Whereas with the erotology books, they were not only um, informative, but they're also quite entertaining as well. And that's something that I kind of quite liked as well, that there wasn't just, like I said, explaining that what you can and can't do. They were speaking about social problems of, of their times in relation to sexual matters. Um, so they use a bit of humour, they use satire as well to educate their 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 readers because, and these were scholars, again, this, these were scholars who wrote books about theology, wrote books about, you know, tafsir, like the um, commentator on the Quran, wrote books even about history, but they also wrote books about sex and intimacy, um, 
primarily um, aimed at men because I think most of the readers at that time were, were male, um, but they were written primarily to men, but written about women and the importance of their male readership, like I mentioned, ensuring that their wives are sexually satisfied. And again, women having the um, sexual autonomy was something that they mentioned. And again, for me, it was quite interesting because that was something that I wanted to kind of bring to light to the English speaking um, audience, especially for Muslims. Um, and then I went about um, translating and putting together my book, A Taste of Honey, Sexuality and Erotology in Islam, which took me about in total 10 years to write. And to, um, wow. Now, when that book came out in 2015, I believe, um, I gave a couple of presentations. To be honest, a lot of Muslims wasn't really forthcoming to the book. I don't know if maybe because it's quite dense. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it's quite, it's you know, quite, yes. quite thick. And, you know, small, small text. So, um, so when that book came out, um, oh, you had a lot to say. I had a lot to say because I, I wanted first again to explain that yeah. Islam has a rich tradition of speaking and writing about sex and intimacy. This is a new phenomenon. So I wanted to kind of show the history, both not only from the time of the Prophet peace be upon him, but also during the so-called golden era of Islam, between like you could say the ninth and like the twelfth century, where a number of scholars from different backgrounds from Iraq, from Egypt, from Persia, from the Arabian um, Peninsula spoke about this topic and they were speaking about the different issues that people in their different cultures have in relation to sex and intimacy, whether it's permissible acts, whether it's acts that are not permissible. And we have to be honest, again, it's not just speaking about um, relations that people have in, in, the, in marriage, it's also about issues and relationships that people have outside of marriage um, and how some people overcame and some of the difficulties they faced. So again, for me, it was quite, like I said, refreshing to kind of come across this, this, this literature tradition. So I wanted to kind of make sure that people can see that there's a rich heritage um, and a lot of sources that they can kind of like go to if they wanted to learn more about it. Again, like, like I mentioned, when that book came out, um, it wasn't as well received maybe as I thought it would be. Um, and then a few years ago, because I was receiving a number of messages from Muslims um, where people asking, especially Muslim women, about some issues that they have in terms of whether it's desire issues or whether it's um, issues in relation to orgasm, whether it's some women feeling that they may be anorgasmic, like um, not being able to climax after a sufficient amount of sexual stimulation or women who have been some issues in terms of desire or women having some issues connecting with their partner. Um, and I thought I answered all of these questions because a lot of those questions they were asking, not from a medical perspective, it was more like, do I have permission? Is this something that I'm allowed to ask as a Muslim woman? It is something that um, scholars spoke about. And for me, it was like, I thought all of this, a lot of these questions, I'd already answered it in a taste of honey. Like you do have permission to not only own your sexuality, but to ask all of these questions. And this was something that a number of the female companions, they asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, a number of very frank questions in relation to sexual satisfaction, in relation to sexual matters like um, nocturnal emission, like female ejaculation. And he answered a lot of these, all of these questions. And there was no like sense of like, oh, this is inappropriate or a woman's immodest if she asks this type of question. So a lot of these questions, like I said, that, that I received, I thought I'd answered it in a taste of honey. But then upon reflection and speaking to some people, maybe because of the way I packed so much information, it probably wasn't as easy for people to read. And I did find that a lot of people maybe had purchased a book or saw a little clip of it. But again, like I said, it was quite difficult, even for me myself, to read. I realised actually this is quite a meaty piece of work that I might need to kind of make it a bit more um, digestible for people to read. So I then went about writing Women of Desire, which you can say 
is a more condensed summary of a taste of honey, but it mainly it's mainly in relation to like women's right to sexual satisfaction in Islamic tradition and some common issues that women have um, not only with themselves, but maybe with like their partner and how like they can overcome it. And then, then I also provided some like recommended resources from, from the Muslim world and outside the Muslim world of contemporary, um, not only intellectuals, but also experts that people can, can go to, whether it's in relation to vaginismus, whether it's in relation to female circumcision, um, FGM or emotional intimacy, that I wanted to show that not only did we have a great past now, but we also have a number of intellectuals and experts like yourself who are doing great work, whether it's in the form of coaching, whether it's in the form of like empowering people, empowering people, especially Muslim women that we do have. So that's why I kind of wanted to write A Woman of Desire, which is again, is a more um, condensed or summarized version of A Taste of Honey, but mainly in relation to women's sexual satisfaction. And not just speaking about women's se sexual rights, because for me, and we will talk a little bit about that later, it is quite clear in the Quran and in the Hadith that women do have a right to sexual satisfaction. I know, unfortunately, um, we often hear about men's sexual rights and the importance of women sexually satisfying their husbands. But what I wanted to demonstrate, not only with a taste of honey, but women of desire, that women have just as much right to sexual satisfaction as their male counterparts. Even though we may only hear about men's right to sexual satisfaction, um, a number of scholars, both in the Islamic jurisprudential prudential, um, tradition from fiqh spoke about women's rights to sexual satisfaction, so much so that if a husband isn't able to um, sexually satisfy his wife, she's entitled to divorce. But this is something that, again, we don't really hear about. Right. Women, um, issues that they may have, she's more than, um, she's well within her right to not only speak to um, an expert or an authority to kind of help her deal with some, maybe some issues or concerns that she's got, that that was something that, again, in the early Muslim community, they didn't have these qualms that, unfortunately, that we, many of us have nowadays, where I think a lot of Muslims, especially, I don't like to use the word practicing, but you could say practicing Muslims have, like, this idea that, um, you know, sex is a is a taboo topic when it wasn't a taboo topic in the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And I think oftentimes... Um, the concept of haya, like meaning modesty or sometimes translated as shame, is weaponized against women. So oftentimes it's used that, you know, you, you've got no haya, you've got no shame if you're asking about such topics, if you're speaking about such topics. And rather than um, argue with such people, especially again, if they're Muslims, if people can see the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, speaking about such matters, that hopefully will debunk the idea that women aren't entitled to sexual satisfaction or women cannot speak about these to topics when the best of people, the best of creation after the prophet peace be upon him, the companions, they had these kind of conversations in the masjid and outside the masjid. So um, it's, it's something that again, and it's something that part of the work that I'm trying to do to help again, like I said, um, showing Muslims and non-Muslims alike that not only is Islam a sex positive religion, but we also have a rich tradition of speaking about sexual satisfaction and helping people um, attain sexual satisfaction in, in their marital relationships. I think that, you know, something that you mentioned, which is very, very important, and it actually occurred to me today, is that, you know, Islam in, 1400 years ago had stated that, you know, women had a right to pleasure and that sex was not only for procreation, but also for, you know, satisfaction of desires and pleasure. And it's interesting because only recently, and I want to um, 
tell you that only recently pleasure was added to the teachings for sex education as early as 2019. So it was during the World Association for Sexual Health World Congress meeting in Mexico City in 2019 that they actually added pleasure to sex education. Isn't that amazing? And that was only what, like three years ago? And Islam gave Muslims or, you know, people that ascribe to Islam, right, the right to pleasure and satisfaction 1400 years ago. So I just thought that that was really amazing and, you know, says a lot about our own tradition that we don't even know. And that's why actually I appreciate your book so much because it brings to the forefront, right, the, all the rights given to both men and women in, you know, in a marriage and uh, regarding sex and sexual satisfaction. Yeah, you do make a, a great point with that. And I think um, as Muslims, or not actually what Islam says about um, sex, like as I mentioned earlier, it's not just an act for procreation purposes. It's primarily it's an act for pleasure. And that is something that was the understanding of a lot of the early Muslims. And even when we look at the Arabic language, when we even talk about nikah, Nikah obviously is generally used to refer to marriage, but also the, the literal meaning or the original meaning means sexual intercourse. And the idea was you have in, you obviously have a marriage in order to not only have sexual intercourse, but to have pleasurable sexual intercourse. And like I mentioned with books such as Jawami al-Ladha, the Encyclopedia of Pleasure, a lot of the early Muslims, they were speaking about sex not for procreational purposes or not something that is just a duty for the man or for the woman. It was something that should be pleasurable both for both parties. And even they would often use the word, and even in the books of fiqh, istimta, meaning enjoyment, sexual enjoyment, that this should be an act that's enjoyable for both the man and the woman alike. And even when we look at the Quran in uh, Surah Baqarah, so the second chapter, verse 2 to 8, and Allah says, alayhinna bil That when Allah is speaking, to, speaking about the women, he said that those women have rights similar to their obligations in, in, in relation to what is fair and reasonable. And when scholars have explained what that verse partic that particular verse means, so Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, he said that that relates into like sexual intimacy. The same way that men have the right to sexual intimacy from their wives, women also have the right to sexual intimacy from their husbands. And not only sexual intimacy, but sexual pleasure. So even our mindset, how we view sex, it shouldn't be something that is just an act of procreation or just something that, I must do in order to satisfy my partner. It should be an act that is pleasurable both for yourself and also hopefully for your partner as well. And because they had this pleasure-minded pleasure -minded, uh, mindset, when they were studying erotology, when they were looking at the different traditions from India, from China, from ancient Greek, they were looking at or they wanted to understand the secrets of pleasure and the secrets of intimacy, the secrets of how we can become closer together as, as a couple. So because of that, they were they didn't see anything wrong with learning, like I said, from different traditions, because not only one community have, has all of the secrets. So that's why they relayed a number of what the ancient Indians had written in the Kama Sutra. And you do find that in many of the Arabic erotology books, they were speaking about what some of the ancient Indians had written, what some of the ancient Greeks had written about sex and intimacy. And there's also a hadith that mentioned that um, when Allah created sexual pleasure, he divided it into 100 parts. 99 parts was given to women and one part was given to men. But Allah gave more modesty in women in the sense that that's why women do not behave like the way men do. And this is something that even modern science have kind of spoken about, that women are naturally um, multi-orgasmic more than men and women's um, 
a female orgasm is more pleasurable compared to a male's or a man's orgasm and it can last longer so this idea that and one of the unfortunate things that's happened though is that although it was understood that women had um, a greater capacity for sexual enjoyment and some even said a greater capacity for sexual desire some of the scholars then were felt like oh because women's capacity for sexual desire and pleasure is so great we need to curb it we need to control it and that's why some introduced some methods which are not from the time of the prophet peace upon him where they're trying to, how can we control this um, female sexuality so she doesn't go and start having relations with Tom, Dick and Harry. And that's why some scholars spoke about cutting the clitoris and all of these FGM practices or making sure a woman stays at home and never leaves the house because otherwise she's going to cause fitna. And you see some of these ideas even today, the way how a lot of um, Muslims, especially like a lot of Muslim men, are so uncomfortable with women's access or women to go out because they fear that she has this uncontrollable desire and lust that she's going to tempt every man. And this is something that's not, again, from the Islamic tradition. It's not it's something that the Prophet taught. It's not something that's in the Quran. But unfortunately, like I said, over a period of time, this, you could say, sexual anxiety or this worry that a lot of some maybe men had where they're trying to curb women's desire. They thought, okay, we need to control it for the betterment of the society. And that's something, again, like I would say, is, is quite problematic because although you do see a number of books speaking about, you know, women having a high sex drive and the importance of men sexually satisfying their wives, some people took it as an, in another way and said, this is an example of women having uncontrollable lust. Mm -hmm. And then they will cite example like the story of um, Zulaikha and Prophet Yusuf in the Quran in the 12th chapter of the Quran, as though this is an example of all women. Look how this woman, she was married, you know, she was married to a wealthy man, yet still she still went after this innocent, um, handsome man. So a lot of, even when I was studying, I heard some, you know, some, um, not necessarily scholars, but some teachers were talking about, this is an example of this how women are, that they're never grateful. And this, again, this is not from, it's your own insecurities that you're projecting. And this is something that, you know, I, I was troubled by because I was like, okay, I understand what you're saying, but that's A, it's in, I, I don't agree with it, it's inaccurate. And you're projecting your own insecurities to others where now there are a number of men who are feeling, okay, yes, women, if we leave them alone, this is what they will do. Therefore, we need to curb their sexuality either by performing some barbaric acts like FGM or not letting them out of the house because this is what they will do, like what happened to poor Yusuf, alayhi and this is a, a problem. So even with a sex positive story where you could see as evident that women have sexual desire, some people can misinterpret that and say, okay, this is why it's a, it's a threatening force and we need to clamp it down. Whereas others can look at it like, no, this is a blessing that women, that Allah has blessed women with a greater desire or greater um, capacity to enjoy sex than men. Therefore, we should try and do what we can to kind of help women experience this, this pleasure. And there were scholars like Imam al-Ghazali and al-Suyuti who, who spoke about not only the act of sex, but the pleasure of sex, of sex, it's a foretaste of paradise. Like, this, like sex is a, is a taste of paradise because it's the greatest and most pleasurable act that one can experience in this world. And the only thing that's comparable to that is like, is like paradise. So they even mentioned that the reason why Allah blessed human beings, not men, human beings, both men and women, with sexual desire and the ability to orgasm is because once someone experienced that, that is like the, the greatest experience that you can experience in this world. And it's also something that can hopefully encourage people to 
do perform good deeds in order to earn um, Allah's grace and Allah's pleasure to experience some um, additional rewards in the hereafter. Because even the idea of sexual relations in paradise, this is something in our tradition and it's not something that we should be ashamed of. And it's something that the companions ask the Prophet, peace be upon him, is this something, are we going to make love to our wives the way we make love to our wives in this world? And the Prophet replied in affirmative, yes, you will, but it'll be more pleasurable. So again, this, um, and this is something, again, sorry if I'm talking a bit too much, but this is something that I wanted to kind of demonstrate with both A Taste of Honey and Women of Desire to show that there is examples of people speaking about sex and intimacy and also about sexual concerns that people have. It's all well and good speaking about, you know, the wonderful things that hopefully the believers will enjoy in the hereafter, but also some of the issues that some people have. So there are women, for example, um, Tamima bint Wahab was a companion of the Prophet, peace upon, upon him. She went to the Prophet asking for a divorce because she wasn't sexually satisfied um, from her husband. And she used um, a, like you could say, she, she held her garment like this to kind of indicate that her husband either was impotent or he had a small member, a small penis. And the Prophet didn't rebuke her. He didn't say, how can you say this? You've got no shyness. You've got no um, modesty. He just clarified what the situation was. And there were other examples of women who went to complain that there was one particular woman who said that my husband, I've got no issue with him, with his character or his dean, but I'm not in love with him. I'm not attracted to him. And she wanted to have a divorce. Um, and the prophet permitted that divorce as long as she gives back the, the mahar, the dowry. So again, the point of relaying these different stories is because many people, especially women, are not aware that in our tradition, women had, women felt entitled to pleasure. And it's not to say I'm saying these stories so women can use them to beat their husbands over or to say that you're not sexually satisfying me, I want a, a, a divorce. But it's so women can understand in our tradition, women are entitled to sexual satisfaction. And this idea that women do not or do not have permission to access um, scholars or people or medical professionals or counselors that 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 is something that is new. That's not the case. It's something that, like I mentioned, not only in the time of the Prophet peace be upon him, but you also had Muslim women, female sex educators like Hubba al Madaniya, who was teaching both men and women alike in the eighth century about intimacy. So again, I'm, I'm saying all of this to say that you know we do have a, not only a rich tradition and heritage, but also we have people nowadays who are like empowering and teaching women their right to sexual satisfaction. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I'm glad that, you know, you bring up all of those historical figures and people in the Quran. I think that's very important for, for women to realize. I think also, you know, in your book, you mentioned several different hadiths, right? And uh, I'm wondering if you can just um, mention those also in the podcast for people that have not read your book yet, you know, in the one in terms of, you um, you know, how when you're intimate with your spouse, it's uh, like giving sadaqah, right? That you gain reward and pleasure from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that, um, you know, if you were to do it outside of marriage, that would be a sin. So it's, you know, when you have relations with your partner, then it's it's an act of charity, which is, you know, something that people don't realize. Also, you know, somebody had asked me in one of my group coaching um classes about uh, foreplay and, you know, whether or not that was haram. And, and of course, you know, you and I both know that it is not, but it's interesting that she would even think that, right? So, you know, it's obviously we, 
a, a lot of women and myself included prior to doing research and reading your book will say that I didn't know all of this, you know? So maybe you could mention a little bit about the different hadiths that also speak about um, intimacy. Sure, I'll, I'll talk about two hadiths um, sure. in, in relation to this hadith of Jabir and then a hadith that you mentioned about um, sex being an act of sadaqah. So the, the, the latter hadith about sex being an act of sadaqah or act of charity um, where there was a group of companions who were um, not well off, so they were quite quite poor, um, and they went to the Prophet peace be upon him because they were complaining that they com- they were complaining that the rich Muslims have taken all away the the good deeds, mm-hmm. and then the Prophet wanted to he asked, "What do you mean by this?" And he said, "And they said, you know, they pray like we pray, they fast like we fast, they go to Hajj like we we go to Hajj, but they also give sadaqah, meaning they give charity, but we haven't got the means to give charity." So then the Prophet peace be upon me, clarified to them, he said, do you not know that Allah has given you something that you can also, you know, give charity, meaning, like sadaqah, meaning do good deeds? And then they were clarifying, you know, what have we got? We haven't got any money. And then the Prophet explained that not every time you say, like you praise Allah, every time you say Alhamdulillah, every time you say Allah Akbar, every time you say SubhanAllah, this is an act of charity. This is like the same as someone giving charity in terms of monetary means, like donating money um, financially. And then the Prophet also said that even in your private parts, there's an act of charity. Or even when you make love to your wife, there's an act of, that's an act of charity. Then the mm-hmm. companions were surprised by this. They said, Ya Rasulullah, are you saying that if we were to fulfill our desires, we're going to be rewarded for it? And then the Prophet, peace be upon him, even said to them that, do you, not re- do you not realize that if you were to use your private parts in that which is not permitted, permissible, that you can earn a, a sin for that? And they were like, yes. Then they said, well, if you um, put your private parts or you fulfill your desires in that which something which is lawful, you'll be rewarded for it. So what this hadith, and again, it's a wonderful hadith, and you had scholars like Imam Nawi who spoke about it, that how this hadith shows like when you're doing lawful acts or halal acts, it can be an act of worship. So something that, like, for example, someone that's drinking something that is halal to drink rather than drinking alcohol, that could be an act of worship. Someone who is engaging in foreplay, who's having relations with their wife rather than engaging with someone that they're not permissible to have relations with, then th- that is an act of worship. And that's why, you, you know, you hear people say like how sex can be an act of worship because you're engaging in something which is lawful. And by that, it's a means to not only uh, um, to receive divine rewards, but also to, hope to earn Allah's pleasure. And it can be a means of entering paradise. And this is something, like, like I mentioned, that, a number of the early scholars and the erotologists they spoke about because for them a key theme of the erotology books was that sex is a gift from God. Mm. Sexual is a gift from God. So because they had this idea, this mindset, it was okay, because this is something that is so great and wonderful that we can enjoy, and not only enjoy it, but also it's something that there's spiritual rewards for it. Let's try and uncover the different mysteries to that we can enjoy it more, not only for ourselves, but also for our partners. So Again, this idea, and again, it's not just a sexual act in and of itself in terms of acts of intercourse, but also act of foreplay. These are all acts and, and ways to earn um, Allah's pleasure because it's something that is permissible. So for someone who, and I'll talk about the hadith of Jabir um, later, but the sister that was you know, questioning um, why is it or is foreplay permissible, it may be because, actually I'll talk about another hadith that talks about foreplay, um, where the prophet, peace be upon him, he said that he told um, the men, do not fall on your um, your wives like an animal. 
Right. And, and he said, before the act of intimacy, before the act of intercourse, you should send a messenger. And the companions asked, what is this messenger that we're supposed to send? And the prophet replied, al-qubul wal kalam, meaning sweet kisses and sweet kisses and um and, and sweet kisses and sweet words, or sweet words and kisses, basically foreplaying, ensuring that you're not just thinking about your desires, but you're trying to ensure that she's not only prepared emotionally, but also before you do anything phys- physical. So again, this is like an example where you had the example of the Prophet, peace be upon him, that not only spoke about sex as an, as it's a, as it's a, um, an act of, um, can be an act of worship and also an act that you should enjoy, that's why this mindset was that the, what the scholars had that, okay, how can we, like I mentioned, uncover and unravel the secrets to, to desire and pleasure for both men and women alike. The right. final hadith, the hadith of Jabir, which is, again, something which um, Imam al-Suyuti, he was a 15th century scholar who wrote, like, he wrote over, like, 20 books on sex and erotism. So people, many, many people have heard of al-Suyuti, Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti, because he wrote about, you know, tafsir, he wrote about... Um, so many different and these books have been translated in English but many people don't know that he also wrote books about sex and again this goes to the idea that especially a lot of Muslims nowadays were uncomfortable to translate or relay not only some of the sexually empowering stories but what some of the scholars have said about sex and intimacy so in this particular hadith the hadith of Jabba which I'll kind of summarize he said that this particular hadith is like sufficient in and of itself in terms of understanding the science of erotology from an Islamic perspective, because it teaches us to learn from someone who is qualified in matters of sex and intimacy. Um, it speaks about the delicacies and the nuances of understanding male and female um, desire and how to ensure that um, both men and women are pleasured. And it's learning a beneficial knowledge from the chosen one, i.e. from the messenger of Allah, Al-Mustafa, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But the hadith in question... Um, and it's and and it is an authentic hadith. It's in Bukhari. It's in Muslim. If anyone is asking, um, so Jabir um, was a companion of the Prophet peace upon him, and he was on his way back with the Prophet peace upon him from a military expedition from jihad, and he was on his way back home, and he was riding his horse, and he was in, in quite a rush, and the Prophet peace upon him, we saw him, and he asked him, "Why are you in such a hurry?" And Jabir mentioned that he recently was got married, and he wants to go back to his wife, and then the Prophet told him that do not go because they were traveling at night wait until like it's the morning before you before you go to the house and also so, to allow her to allow your wife to have some time to comb herself get herself um prepared for you to shave her private parts and also then he said al case al case meaning be gentle be gentle and what the scholars have said what al case means like ibn al hajar asqalani he said it means to be gentle during act of foreplay and al mm-hmm. Something similar. So when even and this was instruction to men: do not be, you know, you know, harsh. Do not be thinking about yourself. Yes, we understand you're eager to see your wife, but you have to ensure a that, and that's why giving her time to allow that she's ready. So this is an example of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi not only teaching the men but the women also that allowing themselves to be um, emotionally and physically ready for the act. It's not just about men going in and just engaging in formal um engaging in penetrative intercourse so this is an example of where the a good muslim man should be considerate of his wife's sexual needs not only her physical needs but also her emotional needs and again like i said this hadith is in bukhari it's authentic but again for whatever reason it's not really spoken about in khutbahs as much or um, maybe islamic um classes that's why many people haven't heard of it but 
that story that I've mentioned, the story about sex being an act of um, sadaqah, um, the story about um, the hadith about women having 99 parts of desire, although that there's some um, scholars who say the hadith is, it may, may be weak, but it's sound in meaning. These are all books that are, were written like hundreds of years ago, so it's not anything new. But unfortunately, like I said, these are what I would call buried treasures that we need to kind of unleash for, for the Muslims, especially for Muslim women. That's amazing. You know, you, you mentioned about uh, planning and, um, you know, what you just talked about with this, explaining this hadith of Jabber and uh, about planning and mentally and emotionally being, you know, basically ready for, you know, some type of uh, foreplay or intercourse or something like that with your spouse. And that actually is something that we talk about actually in coaching and about how setting the right context, right? And that, you know, for a lot of times women talk about, um, you know, that they don't have time or there's not enough time or they're just not in the mood or low desire and things like that. And I was just talking to this group this morning about um, setting up dates, right? And planning and um, setting up, you know, a time where you know that you're going to have uh, intercourse with your partner, right? You're going to be sexually intimate with your partner. And so it's so interesting to me that you're discussing this hadith, which was said, you know, like 1400 years ago. And but yeah, these are the same methods that we use now when it, we're talking to women about increasing intimacy and connection with your partner. I think one thing that is not really spoken about much, and I liked what you mentioned about sexual intelligence, is is not only sexual intelligence or erotic intelligence, but emotional intimacy. And that was something that the Prophet, peace be upon him, possessed, but it's not really highlighted as much. And the way a lot of Muslims learn about sex is like halal haram. This is what you can do, this is what you can't do, this is this person's right. Not un and not appreciating or understanding the context in when certain hadiths were narrated and the person that he was speaking to and ultimately what the aim of a number of these hadiths and these messages but because like I've mentioned about like how modesty is weaponized or how people just look at sex from just a very halal haram perspective when we're speaking about pleasure it's the same way if someone's speaking about happiness what makes it's it's subjective it, it differs from person to person and order to understand what make someone happy what makes some what is what is pleasurable for one person to the other person you need to understand their needs you need to understand them and that's something that i think maybe um many of us especially as men we fall short on because we've got maybe like a rules-based um approach to relationships that if i'm providing if i'm giving you the finances if i'm giving you a roof over your head therefore you should give me what i want in terms of sex whereas if we look at the relationship in terms of like whether it's emotional con connection or whether it's intimacy, whether it's pleasure, then you need to understand what is it that your spouse or what is it that your partner needs in order to cultivate that where she feels comfortable, where she feels safe. And that's something, again, like I said, that even when Allah is describing um, the relationship between a husband and wife, he uses a beautiful verb in relation to Sakina, liyaskunu ilayha, that he created the man and, and the female the Adam and his wife and by extension the husbands and the wife so that the man can find tranquility to find tranquility in his wife and she can find tranquility likewise in him now if you are in a state of worry or fear or anxiety around your partner where you can't even speak about intimacy that's something that's wrong with that relationship absolutely and that's, not, that's not the Islamic ideal that's not what 
that's not what it should be built on. And you know, so again, it's just about our understanding that how we approach this subject. It should be one, I, I think personally, um, that is that both men and women alike, but especially in, women in, in particular, should feel entitled to pleasure, and they should. And I use the word entitled, not um, you can't. No, you feel entitled that, as in you feel like it's a right that you even if you want to demand it, and also you should give yourself permission to experience pleasure. And you can ask these questions, and you, you shouldn't feel that this is somewhat. Um, um, a taboo subject or you should be shamed because you're asking um, about the ab about these questions now the reason why again I would always use uh, ask people to refer back to the early period is because you will find unfortunately even within the Muslim community people who may shame you who may feel that the question that you're asking is inappropriate you cannot change the world or how other people think but you can change how you feel about yourself and if you know this is something that you're entitled to this is a god-given right this is something that the prophet peace upon him had no issue like women um wanting to have um address some of these concerns that they had then you could then find the person that can kind of help you solve any issues that you're going through so that's why i think it's a um we definitely need a lot of i, I won't say sex education i will say re-sex education so to speak because many yeah. of us have been educated but probably miseducated so um, that's why this subject is for some people quite new or or because unfortunately we haven't really heard some of these stories which are in like I said a lot of the books that were written like hundreds and hundreds of years ago right. well that was amazing and I just want to say that thank you so much for giving us that history and letting us know the different places in the Quran and the Hadith that speak about sex and the importance of sex education and about female rights, female sexual rights in Islam. And um, what I want the listeners to know is that I'm going to have another conversation with Habiba Kande. And in our next conversation, we're going to be talking about ways to, you know, increase the intimacy and uh, ways that you can speak with your spouse regarding these issues, these intimate and these uh, topics that are considered taboo. So stay tuned and make sure you listen to the next episode. And while I am done here, it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of religious advice. And so if you are seeking any type of religious advice, then please uh, speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. And this is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one -on -one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsadaf.com. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.